I feel radiant when I live in that freedom he has for me and I stop performing. You know, that ultimately the things that don't get resolved this side of heaven get resolved on the other side of heaven Mm -hmm. and that that's hopeful to me. To me, the radiance of Christ is like a friend that tells you the truth and lifts your face. Jesus, to me, what what he came here and what what he did for all of us, that was the, the physical embodiment of God's grace. Hey, you. Do you find yourself on the search for conversations that point you back to Jesus in the midst of a lot of noise? Here's the thing. You were made to shine. And when you look to Christ and follow him boldly, you radiate his love to the world around you. I want this space to be a safe place to run when you need to hear real truth. So we'll have conversations that will encourage and equip you to stand strong in your life, work, and relationships. Around here, we'll have chats full of both grit and grace, discipline and rest, theology and compassion, accountability and kindness. If you've had enough of fear, shame, comparison, then good. You are in the right place because none of those things will find a home here. So buckle up because I'll be gathering my favorite new friends and some old ones to bring you inspirational stories, strategic advice, and hard-won wisdom that will help blend what you love with the Jesus who makes you shine. I'm your host, Rebecca Dotson-George, and I want to welcome you to the Radical Radiance Podcast. Do you ever get to the end of a podcast and think, I'm just not done with that conversation? Girl, me too. And I love hearing from you about how the show is encouraging you and what God is stirring up in you as a result. And I really wanted the opportunity to connect one-on-one with more of you. So that's why I've created a Radical Radiance Patreon community. Patreon is an online platform that hosts bonus content and provides creators a way to hang out with their audience in a more intimate way. Here's how we're going to use it. There are three tiers, the bestie tier, which will include access to the platform and extra conversations with all our guests that only Patreon besties will get to hear. These questions will not be shared on your podcast platform. Then there's the VIP party tier. This includes the bestie tier access and you get invited to a monthly VIP party on Zoom where we get to hang out, get to know one another better and do some coaching in a group session. Finally, there is the calling coach tier and this tier you'll be able to access the previous tiers plus have a 30 minute coaching call per month with me to talk about anything podcast, ministry or career related. How fun does this sound? So come on over to Patreon by downloading the app or visiting patreon.com and search Radical Radiance. I cannot wait to meet you inside the community. Hey friends, I'm so happy to be back with you today for another episode and today is so special. First of all, we have my husband Dustin joining us. You know, I like to bring him in on fun conversations about things that he loves to talk about. And today we have the red haired archaeologist, Amanda Hope Haley 
on to talk about her new book. And you guys are going to love this conversation. You, you know, for, just from past episodes that we went to Israel in 2019, right before the pandemic, and it totally changed the way we read our Bibles. It was such an impactful trip, and we get to talk about that. We get to talk about the work Amanda does, as well as her new book that released a few months ago, The Red-Haired Archaeologist. And I think you're really going to love it, especially if visiting the Holy Land is something that is on your bucket list. This is definitely a book to pick up before you go to Israel and even just as you explore learning more about the Holy Land. And so I think you're really going to love this conversation. Help me welcome our new friend, Amanda, to the show. Amanda, we are so thrilled to have you today. I'm so excited to get to have this conversation, not just with you, but with my husband. What we shared a little bit before we hit record is we got the opportunity to visit the Holy Land, visit Israel before the pandemic hit us, about six months before that in 2019. And it was such an impactful trip for us. I think we both have said countless times that we'll never read our Bibles the same. It just, it was so impactful. And when I heard about your book, I was so excited because I think the work that you do, and even as I flipped through the book and I looked at pictures of your work, it just gives so much color to Israel, which we talked about before we hit record too, which is really cool. And I'm just excited to chat with you about our trip, about your work. It's just going to be so much fun. So to sort of kick us off, what I'd love to hear from you is you know, at what point did God weave, you know, your passion for scripture, your passion for archaeology into what the work that you do now? Like, tell us about sort of that path to the red haired archaeologist. Wow. So I, I was lucky to be raised in, in a Christian tradition that I think really emphasized reading scripture every single day. And I got in the habit of that really early. And it was I don't know. I was one of those people that it just, it just worked for. And so I fell in love with scripture really, really early. And then when I went to college, I went to a Presbyterian university and we were required to take um, four semesters of religion classes just as part of the curriculum. And the first thing that happened when I got into those classes was I was met with a lot of professors who were not themselves believers. And it felt like they were, you know, hitting me with everything that I had been taught about the Bible that was incorrect. And I knew I loved scripture and I believed scripture, but there was this time period where it wasn't, it wasn't fitting with everything that I had been told my entire life. And um, this was something I, I struggled with. And then when I took a biblical archaeology class, I think it was the last religion class I took as part of that initial curriculum. Um, I just, I fell in love with it. And there was something about seeing physical items that were coming out of the ground from, you know, the first century and prior that it, it confirmed to me that what script, scripture was real and there was something, you know, tangible about it that that is out there. And so I just had to come to this place where um, the two sort of started to work together again. 
And so once I discovered archaeology, it's like it gave me something physical to hold on to that I could study more. And really what ended up happening is I learned more about archaeology. It revealed to me the things I had learned as a child that were tradition, which is not to say that tradition is bad or anything like that. It certainly has its place, but there is a difference between tradition and scripture. And so archaeology is what brings that home for me. Um, it's what brings the Bible to life because when we're over here in the West and you know we're reading about things from two, 3,000 years ago, we're imagining in our minds the, the things that are around us, not what items may have looked like way back then. And archaeology then brings the Bible to life in a way that it was when it was when it was created versus you know, the way we read it now. And I think that that's one thing that we tend to do. You know, mm-hmm. we, we tend to be very, you know, ethnocentric and, and yeah. it's we're reading, you know, oftentimes we'll say at the church, we can't really read the Bible as modern day Americans mm-hmm. without understanding the writers and the events did not occur in modern day America, right? right? And so we have to we have to put that in its appropriate context. And so as as I was reading through your book, mm-hmm. I was just curious if and, and and then based on what you just said, can you think of one factor or discovery that, that just was one of those aha moments that deeply challenged you that that deepened your approach to the Bible? Just maybe maybe an example that just really stands out in your mind. As far as something that came out of the ground? That, that or something sort of thing, came out of the or... ground or or something that challenged those traditional views. Uh, the tradition in in as as contrasted with scripture itself. There there's a lot of those. Um, sure. Especially, I think, when you're talking about even the New Testament, because the New Testament period, as far as archaeology is concerned, we're only talking about, you know, a generation's worth of of artifacts or something that's over there. And so, um, so from the first century, one good example is, for instance, the the whole manger, the whole nativity story. Mm. And one of the first things that I learned about, actually, when I got to grad school, um, was what houses looked like in the first century, the way, you know, cities were set up, the way Bethlehem was set up. And um, it, let's just say in, in, in a city in like Bethlehem during the first century, it's, it's not the way we are today where, you know, farm animals exist on a farm outside of the city center, you know, in lots of areas in their own little, you know, wood thatched buildings and all that. Instead, the animals basically lived with the people and the way the homes were set up inside the cities were the downstairs level is where the animals stayed. And that is where the cooking was set up. I mean, we, there's archeological evidence of taboons and cooking utensils. And even now there are microbiologists who can get in there and like tell you exactly what had been eaten by the people and what was cooked there. And then on the second level is where people lived. It's where they ate. It's where they, you know, weaved and that sort of thing. So you even look at Jesus later on in his life, he has, he has the the last supper in an upper room. Archaeologically, that is correct. That's where like the tables and stuff were set up. And then on the roof time, especially in the summer, that's where a lot of the sleeping would occur. Well, when you understand the way cities were organized and that animals were like right there with the people, then that changes the way you view the nativity. Mm. Because I grew up with this 
awesome little nativity set that is wooden and it has Spanish moss on top and it has this distinctive like metal slash plastic smell that I can even call to mind mm-hmm. right now. And, you know, it's all, and you lay it on snow, right? Like we have this image of Jesus being born out on a farm somewhere right. because he was forced out of the city. Well, what the archaeology tells us, and it, not just the archaeology, but also understanding history and the way culture worked for first century Jews, is they went into Bethlehem with everybody else who was a member of the tribe of Judah to, to fill out the census. And so there was a flood of people in. And while inns, they certainly would have called them inns back in the day, while those may have been a thing, what was more likely was as people were coming in, they were staying in the lower room, or they, they were staying, I'm sorry, they were staying in the upper rooms of these houses. Everyone who lived there would have been opening up their place for friends and family members to come in. So understanding that background and knowing that the word that gets translated in the New Testament in can also mean the upstairs, basically. So our, some of our Bibles fail us here, too, some of our translations fail us here too. But what really happened probably was they go into Bethlehem and they're going to homes looking for places to stay. And the places where the humans slept are full. Hmm. So someone says, sorry, there's no room for you up here. You're going to have to stay down here with the animals. And that's what happened is they went in there and he was born in a manger, which would not have been wood. It would have been made of stone because it was basically a stone feeding trough. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, you know, me as a child growing up thinking, you know, Mary was not allowed to go into a home because she was pregnant out of wedlock and me having all these negative associations with the people who turned her away. Instead, it was just, um, it was just a a happenstance of culture that put them in a lower room. It wasn't because people were being mean to them. It was just a result of the circumstances. In fact, it could be argued the other way that the people in that home found space for them, not the Mm. most comfortable, not probably didn't smell the best, but it also would have been the warmest place in the house, you know, because the animals were there. And so the way we interpret Jesus's birth, wow, when you know the archaeology from the area, it's very, very different from what 2000 years of, of culture has, has given us in, in our, in our, in our stories. Mm. I actually, that's interesting. I actually did a Bible study one time that I had entitled quick giving the innkeeper grief. And, right? and, and I said, I said, not only should you quit giving him grief, he quote unquote, probably wasn't even an innkeeper. Exactly. We, we don't know anything yeah. about this. And, it's and that true. just really, that, that really bothered some of the people in the Bible study because they were saying, Oh no, no, the innkeeper turned them away. And I said, no, no, yeah. you, 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 you act like there's a guy at a front desk that's saying, sorry, yeah, you know, right. we're full, you know, no vacancy. That's not the image at all. That's right. And it's, and it's a hard thing. Anytime something like that comes out where you're trying to re-explain scripture or, or just see scripture apart from all those traditions and I mean, it's a hard thing. I tell the story. I've told the story many times before when I found out that Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute Mm, and this isn't archeology span based, but I mean, it fits in, it fits in with our traditions and our interpretation of scripture. I, I mean, I grew up in church. I was there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know, whenever it was open, I was there. I knew my Bible stories and I had a religion degree and I was in graduate school, Mm. um, learning about Mary Magdalene when, you know, I, I'm, 
made the comment to the class, well, you know, something about her being a prostitute. And I was laughed at. And I was informed at the ripe age of 22, I think that (laughs) no, what you have believed and pictured and imagined your entire life is wrong. And that's a hard thing because first off, it makes you question everything you've ever known about the Bible. Mm. And it makes you question the people who have taught you. And it Mm. requires a lot of work and a lot of introspection. And you need to cling on to your faith and go back to the Bible. And I think not be afraid to dive back in. I tell people with, with things like, you know, when I pull, when I tell them that their, their manger scenes are wrong, it's like, but but that's okay. Like open up your Bible and press into that and figure out what's actually there. And you're going to have an even deeper faith. And that doesn't mean that you have to throw out the traditions either. Not all traditions have to come directly out of scripture. Mm. Um, I mean, they're in tradition, you're connecting with 2000 years of Christianity. We just need to understand the difference between what God actually said and what we've layered on top of it. Yeah, that's so good. And it's funny that you picked Bethlehem to talk about because, Mm -hmm. I can remember that being one of the places that I know for me and I think for you too, Dustin, I just remember leaving Bethlehem and thinking nothing about this is anything that I've pictured for 28 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember getting out of the bus and I don't know, my whole life I've pictured this, this almost Grecian looking hillside Mm -hmm. Uh And it was nothing that I had, that I had imagined. And even the whole, um, the whole feeding trough versus manger thing. I, mm -hmm. that's not what any of us were taught in vacation Bible school. Right. And so (laughs) there were so many of those moments for us um, throughout the trip that just totally reshifted, you know, those pictures that we saw maybe in a, in a, really awesome children's Bible at Mm -hmm. some time in the past in our lives. Right. And so, you know, we both grew up in Tennessee, right. Mm -hmm. So in the center of the sort of this Western mindset that we've mentioned a few times, and I would love to hear a little bit about, and you chronicle this in the book some, but just Mm -hmm. your first experience traveling to Israel. I just want to know, you know, what, changed for you? How did God use maybe that specific trip Mm -hmm. um, to sort of shed some of that mindset and really begin to read God's word more clearly? I know a lot of our listeners will be listening today having not had this experience that we're talking about, but maybe there are people who would love to visit Israel one day. How would you want to encourage them with even your own story of maybe the first time that you had that experience? Well, I, I would preface my story by saying that I was first expecting to go to Israel in 2001. Um, that's, uh, I had a scholarship to go dig at that point. And um, all, much like last year with COVID, um, all of archaeology ended up getting canceled that summer um, because we were in the middle, or they were in the middle of what was called the second intifada. So that was the time, if you're, I'm, I turn 40 here in a couple of weeks. So if you're around my age, um, maybe you'll remember all over the headlines in the U.S., we kept hearing about a lot of bus bombings and just general terrorism going on in Israel at the time. And so that's often called the second intifada. So I didn't get to go in 2001. 
Um, I did go for the first time in 2004. And when I got over there, that, that was in my mind, that was in my memory. And even before I went, I was, I was newly married. In fact, I had my, I, I celebrated my first anniversary in Israel while my husband was still in Boston. And um, I promised him that I would not go to Jerusalem the first time that I went to Israel because he and my family and everyone around us had this impression of Israel as just being a a war zone basically. Well, so I got over there and the first time I was there, I was working in Ashkelon and I sat down with an Israeli, a young Israeli woman who she had just gotten out of the Israeli military because women are required to serve at least one year after they graduate from school in the military. And we were talking about that. And I was saying to her, like, I just, I was just asking her about it. Like, what's it like to be in the military? I was like, that, that kind of scares me. Um, I, you know, just tell me about it. She's like, well, first off, it's just such a part of our culture that everyone goes in um, that, you know, it's just, it, I mean, everybody goes together. It's almost like an extra year of school tied in on top of everything. But she, she, she told me a lot about what life is like there now. And she said, I don't understand as an Israeli why everyone thinks this is such a dangerous, terrible place because we turn on the news during the day and the bad things that happen obviously are on the news, but so much good happens every, every day. Those are just, you know, parts of, of what is happening here. And, you know, I would tell Americans, you know, come here, you're only hearing the bad things. And so this, Anyway, so she told me that then, and I think she's absolutely right. That's still that's still kind of how we think of the Middle East as being, well, let's just say Israel uh, as being war war torn. But when you go over there, especially now, it is there's definitely a stronger military presence than you would expect, you know, here in the U.S. But you don't encounter. I mean, it's just it's a modern city. I mean, and there's there's malls everywhere and people going to movie theaters and and going out to dinner and walking around. And it's it's just normal life. And if you didn't know that you were in, say, Tel Aviv, then, you know, you wouldn't distinguish it from many other cities here in the U.S. And so, I mean, I just encourage people to, to, to get there and and just go and enjoy and learn what the people are like there today. And that's interesting that you say that, because when when we went, mm-hmm. uh, we were in Jerusalem mm-hmm. and for part of our trip, and there was one evening we were all sitting around at dinner, and we had a group of about 40 people, mm-hmm. and we were wow. sitting in the dining area in the hotel, and someone said, well, what's the plan after after dinner and some people were saying well we're we're going to go rest in our rooms or we're going to go here and most of us spent a few hours up on the rooftop in the evening just sort of debriefing from the day and so we're all sitting around and i said oh i'm gonna i'm gonna go walking Mm -hmm. and some of them their eyes got really wide and they said you are going to walk around in the dark I mean, you're, you're going to walk, where are you going? I said, I don't know. I think we're may wander down to the old city. And I heard there's a little mall area that's got great ice cream. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go find that. And, um, I had made, I'd made this, this really fast relationship friendship that, that still goes on today with an Orthodox Jew on the plane, Mm -hmm. on the way over, we, we just started talking and then it was, it was just just a really quick 
formed friendship. And even, even yeah. today, years later, a couple of years later, we're still, we're still, mm-hmm. you know, messaging almost weekly, just talking and, and sharing. And, and so, but the, the idea of, oh my goodness, you mean you're going to go walking around Jerusalem at night? And I said, why, why wouldn't we? I mean, why yeah. let's, let's, because you, there are people walking everywhere. Let's just go out. And some of them refuse to leave the hotel because they were saying, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to go out there without the guide. I don't want to go out. And, mm-hmm. and that was really unfortunate because that was a, that was a high point of the trip. We just yeah wandered around and found things to eat. And there was a, a small group of us that just went and um, yeah, it's, it's really, I, I never, I never once truly felt unsafe. Um, yeah, that just that didn't enter into the equation. It's, it, I mean, it's also a very, very clean city. But I, I think clean. what you did is so important. And I, I have to say, I have never been to Israel like on a traditional like here's a ten day you know tour. I've so I've never had a tour guide that way. Um, I guess I'm kind of an adventurous traveler. Like I'd rather just like rent a car and go. Sure. And we're we're talking about hopefully my next book will will be about Egypt and its its interactions with with the Bible. Nice. And we've been looking at how that's going to work. And the bottom line is in Egypt, you as a woman, I cannot rent a car and just go. Like we're going right. to have to do a tour group that time. But we've always been my husband and I have always been kind of on the ground sort of people. And I think. I think that's important if you can do it, I mean, safely. And I mean, when you go, when you go to any city, I mean, even here in the U S keep your eyes open, pay attention to what's going on around you and, you know, just be smart, be safe. But, um, that what you did gave you a feel for what the city is like outside of what's being presented to you. Cause when you go on a, tour group of anything, you're really limited by who scheduled it, how they designed it, what you're being told. Whereas you had the opportunity to go out there and experience stuff for yourself. And I would say, especially in places like Jerusalem and other areas in Israel, that that is so important because Israel is this one place on earth where ancient history completely coexists with modern life. Mm, the people who are there, there, there is no separation between, you know, the, the, the area that they're walking in, especially when you get up to like the sea of Galilee and all of that, those people are living and working every moment of every day in the land of Bible. Right. And that's something we as Westerners don't have access to. And um, I've realized by traveling over there, I think that's something that 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 we sorely lack and we have to work really, really hard to overcome. Mm. But no matter you know how many times we go to church or how many days per week we have small groups, those are all really, really great things. It's different from you know walking to work every day in the land of the Bible and just being in this place where you're constantly surrounded by, by the history mm. of all of the, the Christians and Jews who have come before you. And I think it's something we have to work to overcome. And I don't know that really locked down tour groups um, are able to help people do that enough. It, I think it's important to have a little bit of that adventurous spirit to get out there and meet the people and talk to them and see how just the Bible just infiltrates even their daily lives. Hey friends, just a quick break in today's episode to tell you all about one of our sponsors, the Shine Bright Journal. This is a free resource to help you walk through scripture and learn about what it looks like to radiate the love of Christ. 
We'll look at the fruits of the Spirit, what the church is supposed to look like, and so much more. You will have room to dive into scripture, pray, journal, all the things. And I hope it's such an encouragement to you. So go grab it today for free by heading over to RadicalRadiance.life. Now, back to our conversation. Yeah, I'm just sitting here remembering not to toot his horn like even more, but like there was that (laughs) moment where we went out at night, but there were even more moments where you would raise your hand and you would say, hey, are we not like 50 feet from so-and-so gate or like we weren't supposed to go to the Southern Step, were we? Um, Didn't you? No, we we were. That was on the list. Okay. No, it was the. I just was, was going to have you share about that it was because the that was. Gate. It was the. It was the Golden Gate. Yeah, it was the Golden Gate that we weren't okay. supposed to. Yeah, that was okay. not on the tour. But do you want to talk about the Southern Step? Well, sure. Okay. <laughs> I want to hear what happened. Well, well, <laughs> well, the the thing was the thing was for me, if there was, I every day we were there, mm-hmm. I would at the end of the day I would say you know I could go home today completely and totally blown away, satisfied. And, and just, it goes, I, I was just thinking, well, it just can't get any, it can't, it can't get beyond this. Right. We're, we're, right. we're, we're, where you know, Elijah faced the prophets of Baal. Right. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm saying, okay, well, <laughs> this is the favorite, favorite, favorite <laughs> passage in the old Testament, right. That standoff, yeah. that showdown uh, at Carmel. And so, I'm I'm just I'm I'm blown away repeatedly at different areas. We're we're in Jerusalem one of the days and we walk over and our guide was um she was sort of a cultural Jew. Mm-hmm. Uh she sure. was she was culturally Jewish. She was not very devout right. by her own admission. Mm-hmm. And so she would she would give us some history and she would just throw out a couple of little things, but there was a lot of the New Testament that it just sort of she would just sort of gloss over. And so mm-hmm. I would try to, you know, and she would she would defer to me to fill in some gaps, of course. Yeah. And we were we were standing at the the southern steps and of the temple. And mm-hmm. I had my my little receiver in because she has her microphone and we're all wired in together. Mm-hmm. And I hear her say, where's, where's Dustin? Where's Dustin? Oh, okay. There he, okay. So he's just wandering off. And so, <laughs> and so I left, I just left the group and started walking up the Southern steps and, and then knowing the whole connection with Pentecost and the Southern steps. And this is, this is most likely according to historians where Peter addresses the, the group mm-hmm. and, and then the mikvahs are right there, the ritual baths for the, that would have led to the baptism. And I just had this moment there just standing there, just dumbfounded. And, and, and then this is the, the, the common entrance to the temple precinct. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't even have any words. And so then everybody left and went to the next area and, and I'm just still standing there. Yeah. And I was with one of my friends and I looked at him and I said, 
do you realize where we are? And I started talking to him and he started getting emotional. And I said, I am just completely undone by this moment. And, and then as we're talking, I realize I have no idea where anybody else is because now I hear, I hear the, the receiver starts to crackle because they're getting out of range. And I said, I guess we need to go find everybody, but this is just such a, this is just such a moment where that all of the things that, that you're re, you have read the stories you've heard, and then you're standing in the place and, and, and upon some of the, these stones, the ones that have, you know, not been replaced, you're, you're, you're right. You're standing there in this place, in this actual space, Mm -hmm. um, not a reconstruction, but the place and that changes everything. And, and then I find that I go back now. And when I'm, when I'm reading, and I'm sure you can relate to that. You're you're reading a passage or a text, yeah. and now it's not the the image that I had in my children's Bible. Right now, it's the shore of Galilee where uh, I stood. Yes, right, and it's mm-hmm. the it's the steps that I I, I stepped on. It's mm-hmm. the the view from the Mount of Olives yeah. of of the the old city. From okay, this is this is at least the direction and somewhat some of the things, at least mm-hmm. in the general layout that yeah. that's how it would have been viewed. Right. And, and that everything changes from that point on. I, I, I tell people my only regret, I only have one regret about visiting Israel. And that is, I did not do it sooner. It's oh. my only regret. My I've, only a regret. lot of, a lot of people have said to me before that once you go, especially to Jerusalem, no place ever quite feels like home again. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's True. some truth to that. And um, I mean, you only want, but just because you've been one time, you want to go back. You do. Like there's something, there's something about that land and those space, that space, and even the people who are still there today that mm-hmm. they carry all these traditions that maybe they're not ours, but they're the foundation of a lot of ours. And it's just, there is this restful, I don't want, maybe not peace, but there's just this, this calm of just being there. True. Um, And, and yeah, being in this, in this ancient space and, and yet being surrounded by a modern metropolis, you mm-hmm. know, where, I mean, it's Jerusalem is the modern, well, depending on who you ask, but according to the U S anyway, it's the modern capital of, you know, the state of Israel. So, I mean, while laws are getting made there and they're dealing with all the things we deal with here in the U S it's also this ancient cradle of, well, I mean, God had his presence there sure. un- until Jesus's yes. resurrection. Yes. It's unlike any other place on earth. And yes. that convergence of, of the modern and the ancient, um, I don't know, that, that just speaks volumes to me, obviously, because mm. I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> I like people, to bring that old stuff up. <laughs> I've told people that, that is, Jerusalem is the only city, and I don't mean anything supernatural by this, but mm-hmm. it's the only city that I consistently dream about. Really? Like I have, I have more dreams about Jerusalem 
freeway. than any other place. And again, I'm not trying to make some, I'm not trying sure. to connect. I'm just saying it is on my mind so much. We have a, we have a panoramic photograph uh, that was not taken by us, but we have a panoramic yeah. photograph from the Mount of Olives looking okay. into, looking at the old city from the Mount of Olives. And you know the view, okay. I'm sure. Oh, I do. I and, do. And we yes. have that we in our dining it. room. <laughs> Don't we recommend have, that. <laughs> <laughs> Down it up. <laughs> no, that's true. It's yeah. very true. It is, it is a trick. But we, we have that panoramic view on our dining room wall. So wow. it's, it's every day we're, we're yeah. looking at, we're looking at the old city. Uh, wow. well, well, speaking of, of that, the, the old and the new mm-hmm. so fused together, uh, what, what recent archeological find uh, has excited you the most? Um, very, very recent. Um, I'm sure you guys heard about the, new Dead Sea Scrolls that came up. Um, And this is exciting to me as an archaeologist, also because of the technology that went into it. Mm. I don't know if your your listeners have heard about this, um, but the story, I I did a lot of research on it because I was obsessed when when it first came out. But in 2007, the Israel Antiquities Authority got a group together, sort of a covert group of archaeologists and um, geologists and all these people. And they decided, you know, we need to get into the Judean Highlands and we need to use drone technology and um, Mm. all sorts of other technologies that I don't understand and get in there and map out all of these caverns and see if we can tell what is in those places. So they started in 2007 and they started recording all of the stuff. They're not done. I think they're maybe like 60% done with mapping all of this out. Well, in the process of doing that, they identified places where there were that archaeologists needed to get into. And so um, back in the 1950s, shortly after the original cache of the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the um, one of the first professional archaeologists to get on site went in and excavated something that became known as the Cave of Horror. And it was called that because um, they found 50 plus, I think that's right, skeletons there. And it was believed that they were the Essenes, the people who had lived at Qumran and had created the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm -hmm. Well, when they were attacked by the Romans, they fled into these caverns and, you know, they ultimately died there. So the major archaeological excavation happened in the 50s, but for various reasons, they weren't able to get absolutely everything out. And one of the things they didn't get out were all of these scroll fragments. And it's because in some cases, the fragments were so small, they were discovered by sifting the dirt. So so in modern times, they were found by sifting the dirt that the excavators from the 1950s had created while excavating. And when they sifted, they found all of these fragments in there. Some of them were so small, they were like the size of a mustard seed. Mm. And so they actually had the archaeobotanists in there going, um, nope, that's a piece of scroll fragment. That's a piece of scroll fragment because those people have the most amazing eyes and they can see stuff that normal people can't. Um, so th- anyway, they found these scroll fragments, which are new to us. They're the books of Nahum and Nehemiah, I think. Um, so those are great. But what really got me excited um, was the, what else they found in there. They they found a, a child. I think he was 10 to 12 years old and he had been naturally mummified, not mummified like in Egypt, mm-hmm. you know, where they go through the process and remove the organs and all that. But just because of the climate, his body had naturally been mummified. So, I mean, that was sad. Um, but then they also found this basket and it has been determined 
today to be the oldest basket in the world. Mm. And it looks like a giant pear, basically. And it's uh, they're dating it at about 10,000 years old. And I just so happened to know the woman, um, I or I, I, sh- I don't know her, I met her when I was doing my last archaeological excavation in Shimron. And, you know, she went in and they did all the dating and they're also taking all the trace amounts and they're going to figure out like what was contained in this basket. But it's like, it's practically in perfect condition and yeah. it's so ancient. <laughs> um, and so they found it. So what they found was cool, but then the way they did it because they had to take drones in there to figure it out. And then the drones could get into crevices and see things that, I mean, there were simply spaces that were too small for humans. Mm. Well, so then for the archeology, for the excavations to happen, these people had to physically repel down cliff faces to get into these tight areas to do all this work. And so every day, they had to go in there with all of their gear and do it. And every night they had to pull all of their gear plus whatever they found out Mm. and do it safely. And just, it's an adventure. And I feel like I go around telling people like, archaeology is nothing like Indiana Jones. It is, it's a lot of work. It's painstaking. It's scientific, but this is Indiana Jones stuff. (laughs) Like, I feel like this, this just is completely contradicting everything that I've been telling people forever because I mean, apparently you have to be a swashbuckling kind of person to discover some of these things. So I just thought that was awesome. Just Mm. the way all of these different fields came together to make this happen. And I mean, there's still, I mean, I think hundreds of caves and crevices that need to be gotten into. So I think more is going to be coming out of this project. That's great. And if, and if the listeners have not seen those photos, uh, I've seen the photos online of the basket yeah, it, it's it is unreal. remarkable. It is it's remarkable. Pre-pottery, so like when you right. do archaeology, most most of the although science is coming into a little bit more now, but for a hundred years, the way we dated things was based on what the pottery looked like, how it was shaped, how it was painted, and then where it was found, and as far as like the strata of the dirt. Sure. But this is so. This is so old. It's pre pottery. It's from before pottery had been invented. Mm. And these people had managed to make a basket waterproof, which I understand is a thing. Like, I think people can still do that today, but it blows my mind. I could never make a basket that, you know, was waterproof. That's insane. But so the technology that went into creating this thing that survived for 10,000 years, it just, it's also amazing to me. And and it's in such great condition. It looks like, it looks like something it looks like you've walked into a local craft fair. I was just like, like and, pottery barn. <laughs> right. And yeah. and you just saw this on a display yeah. table. And mm-hmm. because it the condition, it, it truly is mind-blowing. It is. Truly it is, is mind-blowing. And that's just that area because it's so arid. Um, but right. then again, it's not too arid that everything dry rots. I mean, just the conditions had to be absolutely perfect to preserve that. And then, I mean, and then scientifically... The sad side is you also see what the conditions did to right. you know, to the corpse. They, because usually in archaeology, we find the bones. The other stuff doesn't survive. Sure. Um, but, in, but in this case, it did. And so, I mean, that's that's going to – there's a lot to be researched and studied Absolutely. there as well. Like, to begin with, who was this person? Who was there 6,000 years ago? You right. know, we, we don't necessarily know that yet. So, it's, it's also exciting. <laughs> well, okay. Because I have to ask – Okay. Okay. I have to ask the best food you experienced in Israel. I know that's yes. probably going to be hard, but, but no. what was it? <laughs> and what was it? And where did you have it? Because that was always the high point. 
yeah. of, of every day was, yes. where am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? Yes. And, and then there were things that, that I know, I know Rebecca, you found that I found that then every day, that's all I wanted. Yes. And so, yes. so do you have, you have one of those things? Absolutely. Um, first off, I will say we, we we're, we're, we're kinsmen because my husband and I joke whenever we go like on trips anywhere that a vacation is killing time between feedings sure. is the way we put it. Like we set up based yes. on where we're going to eat, like we Absolutely. research the restaurants, all that kind of stuff. So it's all about that for that us. It's efficient and good. And yes. Right. yes, yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. So, um, restaurant wise, the best restaurant we ever ate at um, is in Magdala and it was called Magdalena. And it was, it's, I mean, it's in Magdala. So it's right on the Sea of Galilee. And so all of the fish and everything that came into it was literally caught hours before it hit your plate, which honestly, that's the way it is pretty much everywhere in Israel. If you're getting seafood, it's, you know, getting there. It was caught in the Mediterranean or the Sea of Galilee or whatever that day. Um, But just the way they put everything together, that, that was a fine dining kind of place, but more generically, um, you you guys dream about Jerusalem. Um, I actually did dream before I went back about the produce there. Mm. There's nothing like an Israeli cucumber mm. or an Israeli tomato or something like that. No matter where we ate, I honestly, what I looked forward to and what I craved was the produce. Mm. The produce there is just out of this world. And I mean, we live in Tennessee, you know, we, I grew up with a backyard garden and fresh produce is not unnatural to me, but there's something about the produce over there mm. that I, I did. I literally dreamed about their cucumbers for years before I was able <laughs> to go back. It's insane. And salads are part, that's a cultural thing. Salads are part Absolutely. of every meal, every meal, every like meal. Even when breakfast. you even breakfast, yes. I mean, I, they're, um, yeah, they're, their eating habits are different from ours. Like when you go into breakfast, if you're at a hotel or something like this, you probably experience this. Literally everything is there in the morning. I mean, you can get you know, fish that still have their, you know, their, their fins and their heads on them. And, and there's pizza over here and the bread is incredible there. Bread. The entire spreads of different uh. kinds of salads. And then, you know, grab yourself a real chocolate French croissant on the way out with your espresso. You know, breakfast is weird there for me. But mm. you adjust to it. And I mean, I, I loved it. The food, there's all of the food is incredible. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. <laughs> I remember loving that salad that they fix everywhere. That's just, it's just cucumber and tomato. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's yes. everywhere. And then with it's, some of the white cheese. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man, we would just wake up like with a spoon in our hand ready for breakfast because we loved it so much. And we would try different things every day that the coffee at our hotel, Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, we're both coffee connoisseurs, but I think we would both say that's some of the best coffee that we've ever drank in our lives. It was so good. We loved it. So I don't remember the, I don't remember the coffee just I mean, it was, it was good. I remember enjoying it, but we did a bed when I was on the archeological dig one night, we went and had a Bedouin meal and they prepared for us Turkish coffee. And that was the first time I'd ever had Turkish coffee. And I mean, it was 10,000 degrees. And of course it was 10,000 degrees outside too, but you know, they came in they're like, we drink it hot because if you drink it hot, it cools you off. That still doesn't totally make sense to me, but that was the best cup of coffee I ever had in my life. And it was super, super strong. So I think you have to love coffee to, to go for the Turkish stuff, but that 
I, I dream about that a little bit too. Mm. Or I guess I don't dream about it. I guess I'll lay awake thinking about it. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Well, we both, I mean, I would say once every five or six weeks, I have some type of dream. Sometimes I'm in an airport on the way to Israel. For some reason, that happens okay. a lot. And then there have been several Sea of Galilee dreams. Mm. But it, every few weeks, I will have one. Um, it's one of my recurring dreams. So, yeah. Well, Amanda, we we love you. We are so excited about this book and just how it will help educate our friends and and hopefully renew that passion to hopefully one day um, either go or go back to Israel. And so we're just we're excited about the work that you do and we're thankful that you would chronicle it all in a book for us. <laughs> and so I want everybody to go check out your book, The Red-Haired Archaeologist. It's out in the world by the time listeners will listen to this episode. And so what we're about to do is go get to know you a little bit better over on our Patreon community. So for subscribers over there, make sure you check out that conversation. But Amanda, we just want to say a huge thank you for your time today. We're so grateful for you. Well, thank you. I've so enjoyed sharing all of this and talking with you both. This has been awesome. So fun. Yes. Thanks so much for listening to the show, friends. I am so thrilled to have you be a part of this community. A couple of things I want to remind you of. Number one, did you know that when people rate and review podcasts on Apple Podcasts, it actually helps more people come across the show? When that happens, the messages we're sharing get spread even further and we get to encourage more people. How fun is that? So it would mean the world to me if you would do something that would take two minutes or really less of your time. Hop on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a written review. Tell me how the show is encouraging you and invite others to listen in. It truly means the world to this girl on the other side. And number two, if you are loving the show and you want even more content from Radical Radiance, hop on over to our Patreon page on your desktop or mobile device to listen to after the show bonus interviews, attend live Zoom parties, extra coaching, all the things. They're all there. So simply download the Patreon app and search Radical Radiance. Goodness, I would love to see you over there in that community. I just want to thank you one more time for listening today. And I can't wait to be back with you next episode. Same time, same place. So for now, let's go girls.